Hello there, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Rational Religion Show, where we discuss religion, science, and society. We're joined on this episode um, by a very special guest, Professor Michael Flannery. He's a professor emeritus of library sciences at the University of Alabama at, Alabama at Birmingham. And he's a uh, one of the primary historians of the modern intelligent design movement, especially uh, specializing on uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the co-founder, along with Darwin, of the modern theory of evolution. Um, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here, Omar. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start sort of before we kind of delve deep into Wallace and the history of him and Darwin, I want to talk about you, if that's okay. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your own kind of professional background as well as your, just your, your interests and um, yeah, where you've kind of, where you're coming from? Right. Well, my, my, ba my background is, is in librarianship, as you, as you pointed out in your introduction. Um, I have my library science degree uh, that I got more years ago than I care to think about um, from the University of Kentucky. Um, but I also have my uh, degree in history from California State University at Dominguez Hills. Um, so I, I am sort of, yes, I'm part librarian and part historian. And I kind of merged those two interests together, um, fortunately for me. Um, by becoming uh, the Associate Director for Historical Collections uh, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, a position I held from 1999 to 2016. Prior to that, um, I was the Director for uh, the Lloyd Library in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is one of the premier collections in botanical medicine. Um, so, you know, I've kind of had a career in both feet in librarianship, one foot in, in librarianship, one foot in history. And I've been able to um, parlay that fairly well um, throughout my career. And now that I'm retired, um, I devote almost all of my attentions to historical work. Um, I've been focused on uh, Wallace, as you know, um, the topic of our of our interview uh, today, um, but I'm moving on from Wallace to uh, to look more broadly at the issue of teleology in the life sciences, a ongoing project that um, probably is going to keep me fairly busy for the next few years. Um, at any rate, that's sort of my background, um, how I have worked my career in both fields. Um, and I suppose that uh, a lot of my work uh, in Wallace was actually a direct result of uh, my uh, having been Associate Director for Historical Collections, because it was there that I discovered him. Um, by looking at some of his books in our collection, I started to look through what he had written uh, more than a century ago. And... Uh, became utterly fascinated, and I suppose the rest is history. Um, how did that kind of develop? Did you initially see him as, as many historians unfortunately do, as a bit of a kooky Victorian figure and as a, a side note to Darwin, or did you kind of initially quite quickly realize there's something special about Wallace which has been missed? Well, I, 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 was, I was pretty sure that, that, that there, something was up 
with Wallace because uh, while it's true he did co-discover the theory of natural selection, what he ultimately came to in terms of, of how natural selection actually functioned uh, operationally in, in, in biology um, was quite different from Wallace's. I mean, from, uh, from Darwin's, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and because Wallace's view was so dramatically different, I did not automatically think of him as a kook. I didn't have any pre preconceived notion about oh. Wallace at all. Um, and this was even before I, I knew he had gotten into spiritualism and some of these other things. But I came to, to, to realize that as a scientist, he, he perceived things differently uh, than Darwin did at, at some certain fundamental levels. And so I pursued, you know, sort of Wallace as I found him, discovering him to be so different from Darwin. Then I began to ask myself, the obvious question why what what was what was wallace seeing in nature that Dar darwin wasn't seeing hmm. and um it it's by looking at his books uh, in in the in the collection that we have the historical collection that we have that i began to see that that wallace had a a separate strain or a separate track of looking at life, the nature of life, uh, whether or not life was directional, whether or not biology was directional, um, and that Darwin had hardly written the final word on the subject and that uh, Wallace really had an intriguing take that I wanted to pursue to its ultimate conclusion, which I, I think I did, or at least I tried to do in my book, Nature's Prophet. Hmm. And I um, have a copy of that. Thank you very much for that. This is a fantastic book, which I've gone through and uh, have many annotations. Um, and that's kind of what really inspired me to reach out to you again and talk to you, because um, uh, I think it's really a book that needs to be highlighted. And in the meanwhile, you've also, you've been even more prolific that you've been, you released another book um, or a collection of uh uh, I guess it's an abridged version of Wallace's last book, if I understand it, and it's can called. Can you see the book here? I don't know if you can yes, see it. Yes, yes, yeah. There. Intelligent evolution: um, How Alfred Russell Wallace's world of life challenged Darwinism. Um, so, can you briefly kind of tell us what what the difference between the two books are and and what they cover? If you get Nature's Prophet, you'll get really the history of the development of Alfred Russell Wallace from really the beginning of his theory of natural selection to his ultimate development of that or transformation of that mm -hmm. into uh, his natural theology. And you'll get the history of that, how that happened. If you want to actually get his argument for his natural theology, then you'll want to get intelligent evolution and, and uh, you'll be able to get the key chapters uh, I believe there's about nine of them um, from the original work, uh, which you know I pulled from the 1910 uh, issue, original issue, and we um, basically republished those, and people can read for themselves exactly how Wallace constructed his argument. 
Mm. And, and, and the subtitle to The World of Life really tells it all. He, he says it's the, uh, the manifestation of creative power, uh, directive mind, and ultimate purpose. So that's really the thesis of the entire work. Um, I, and I think this would be a good time to mention kind of my own interest in yourself and the work that you do. I guess stems, I mean, there's, there's, I think it appeals to anyone who's somewhat intellectually curious, to be honest. But um, I think specifically from my own background as a Muslim and a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we've um, had very well articulated in our um, books for many decades at least um, that we believe in guided evolution. So we believe in evolution, but believe that both uh, the variation and the natural environments were shaped by God. Um, and that was what I think was so interesting for me because there's this incredible untold story here of the, the, the co-founder of the, the leading materialist theory of, of, of the whole of science, basically converting in a way, or, you know, basically saying, I, I, I actually don't agree with the implications that have been drawn by others and have the opposite, um, take the opposite view. Because the stakes here are actually enormous from a worldview, you know, perspective. We live in a world and and scientific world where everything is said to be the product of blind natural laws operating quote unquote by themselves. They just keep going and they produce things like like mathematical patterns, and we're just the outcome of this fizz that comes up, and we just happen to be sentient humans with religious and spiritual impulses and speech and all these wonderful characteristics. And the the reason why we have them apparently is just because they're advantageous, and it is. Um, backwards and ignorant to think otherwise and to think well are we actually the result of some design in the same way we create artifacts which have complexity in them are we ourselves you know the classical nat natural theological argument are we ourselves the product of design and is there meaning and is there purpose um, and i think that's really the heart of it are, are our lives meaningful and purposeful because according to darwin fundamentally they're not you know you can make up your own meaning as modern secular humanists try and say you can you know, find meaning in gardening or some form of activism activism or whatever it is that kind of um, tickles your fancy but ultimately that will be a form of self-deception if darwin is right um, because there is no ultimate purpose so to have the co-founder of the modern theory of evolution by natural selection saying quite the opposite is um is profound and needs to be highlighted so i mean can you can you kind of uh, comment on that if you'd like, but also just take us through uh, the outlines of how that happened. Where did Wallace start from? And, you know, let, let's focus initially on, on the beginnings of, of Wallace and how his views bega be, um, began to be known. Well, it, it, it really went as far back as around 1856 when uh, he was taking a look at the orangutan and, and uh, he said, you know, the orangutan has certain features that we, 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 we really, you know, you have to wonder why they were developed the way they were for the purposes they were, um, whether it's, it's, it's intelligence, um, it's, it's, it's fangs, it's heavy teeth. Um, and he says, you know, Naturalists, which is what biologists were back then, he says, naturalists want to come up with a purpose for everything in nature that 
you know, sort of can be described naturalistically. And he said, there, there, are, there are some things in nature, he sort of extrapolates more broadly. He says, there, there are some things in nature that, that may not have that kind of reduction, reductionist explanation. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, of course, but, mm. but, but, uh, you know, and then later on, he says, you know, you know, there are certain things in nature that that defy um, this sort of reductionist explanation. So, for example, beauty. Yeah, there are, there are certain things in beauty. I mean, a butterfly's wing is certainly beautiful and is beyond the needs of the insect itself to survive. For that matter. The whole process of metamorphosis is somewhat mysterious because if all its needs were satisfied as a caterpillar, why even metamorphosize itself into a butterfly? So he says that there are these features in life. Um, he really, he really doesn't begin to make the break um, un until well. He speculates about these things and writes broadly about them in general, but then he begins to look at the special attributes of human beings, and he really begins to make his break um, in a key paper he delivered to the Anthropological Society of London on March 1st, 1864. And, and he basically says that the, the special attributes of human beings, um, well, let me back up a bit. In that key paper, what he really says, he doesn't break with Darwin, but he says that natural selection no longer had an impact on human beings that they had developed to a certain point at which they were no longer under the oppression of the, of the vicissitudes of nature, as it were, mm. that, that the tables were turned and instead of natural selection controlling them, they in fact were controlling nature yeah. at some key point, okay? And uh, this signaled trouble to Darwin and some of his colleagues who were sort of thinking, hmm, we're starting to sense a break here. And Wallace tried to calm them down and said, no, you know, I, I still think human beings uh, are a product of common descent and I'm not really bolting from the camp yet or anything. However, yeah. it was an indication, and they were right in a lot of ways, that Darwin was beginning to separate his thinking from, from the Darwinians. Uh, and he was beginning to place natural selection in a very different context yeah. and was actually saying that human beings were no longer even under the control of natural selection, which was beginning to change everything for him. And yeah. then finally, in the April issue of 1869 of the Quarterly Review, in a review actually of, um, of uh, a work on geology, um, he makes an explicit break. And he says, 
well, we know that the special attributes of human beings cannot be explained by wholly naturalistic means. The mind of man can only be explained um, through an overruling intelligence. Hmm. That was his phrase. And of course, Darwin was aghast that he, he could not, that's more than letting the foot in the door. You're, you know, you, you've opened the door all the way now to teleology and God and all the rest. And he was absolutely appalled by it. Um, but Darwin never, I mean, Wallace never looked back. He, he never retracted a word of it and continued to develop that thought throughout the remainder of his career. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, it culminates in his book in 1910 called The World of Life. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, so that's that's very interesting. It's, that's the kind of the beginnings and how it started to mature his break. I guess let's um, let's back it up a little bit because there'll probably be some viewers who, who don't know much about Wallace at all um, and don't know right. that that early history. We don't have to go through all of it because that's what your books are about so they can read that. But can you give us the outlines of the early yeah. relationship between Wallace and Darwin and how yeah. that developed? Let's compare the two a little bit and, and that'll maybe open up for your readers the difference between Wallace and Darwin. Um, first of all, Wallace was 14 years younger than Darwin. Uh, he was born um, on January the 8th uh, 1823. He died November 7th, 1913, 90 years old. So he had a long life. Um, Darwin died uh, in April of 1882. So, so Wallace had many years uh, after, after Darwin had passed to continue to work and develop his theories. At any rate, that's sort of the time frame that we're looking at here. Now, we all know that, 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 uh, Darwin had his main field experience on the Beagle when he made his uh, circum, uh, circumnavigated the, the globe um, uh, uh, along with Captain Fitzroy investigating the wonders of nature and in particular the Galapagos Islands and so forth and so on. That was about, I, I think about a five year journey he had on there. Now, by, by contrast, Wallace spent over four years investigating the flora and fauna of South America. Um, he was there from the spring of 1848 until the October of 1852. And then he spent from 1854 to 1862, um, uh, roughly eight years in the Malay archipelago. Um, so altogether, uh, he had, you know, about 12, 13 years of field experience, uh, over twice what, what Darwin had. And, and there's an important difference, and, and I wanna emphasize this, um, when we think about the kind of experience in nature Darwin had versus the kind of experience Wallace had. As I said, Darwin spent his time with Fitzroy on the Beagle circumnavigating the, the globe. He would make forays inland and make various day trips as it were, uh, and mingle amongst some of the native populations. But by and large, he was tied to the ship. Yeah. He went where the ship went and he never went far from the ship because that, that was his transportation. 
Wallace lived with these people. He lived with the the, Uwap, the Indians of the Uapes River Valley in, in the Amazonian River Basin. Um, he lived with the uh, island peoples of the Malay Archipelago. He knew their languages. He knew their customs. He knew everything. He was intimately acquainted with these people because he lived with them in ways that Darwin just never did. And therefore, I think at a very basic level, Wallace came to understand these indigenous peoples in ways that Darwin did not. Darwin at best had a superficial view of these people. And as we all know, somewhat infamously, when he saw the, the natives of Tierra del Fuego, when he was going around that, that part of the world, he was aghast. He says, oh my gosh, you know, they're, they're closer to animals than they are to human beings. You never get that from Wallace. Wallace knew better because he lived with these people. Hmm. And, and so I think from the get-go as naturalists, Wallace was uh, deeper and more intimately acquainted with his surroundings than Darwin was. You know, there's a certain sense when I look at, at Darwin, people would be aghast at this, but I, I really think if you compare uh, Wallace's uh, great travelogue, he wrote an excellent travel book called The Malay Archipelago. And uh, I think this that book was published around 1876. At any rate, it's still regarded as one of the great scientific um, travelogues of, of the 19th century. Yeah. E.M. Forster loved it. Um, it's, it's marvelously written. And if you look at that book and then compare it with Darwin's Voyage on the Beagle, when you look at Wallace's book, you see somebody intimately acquainted with the people and their cultures. Darwin, by comparison, almost looks like a tourist. I mean, I, I'm serious. He looks like a tourist. He, he's just sort of floating about, and here's these people, and he, he makes, you know, vague statements about their culture nine times out of ten that he's wrong, um, and makes assertions about Native peoples that he really knows nothing about. Um, in ways that, that, that Wallace uh, never would have. Wallace knew these people far better than any of the indigenous people that Darwin encountered. So, you know, that's one of the take-home pieces you can take as differences between the two. But if we want to relate this, go ahead. Um, well, I was just going to say, I think that um, that's very interesting and that really comes through from... Um, their mutual histories. And you spoke about this actually in, in a previous book to this one, which is your biography of, um, I think, A Life Rediscovered of, of Wallace. Yes. Um, and um, what you show there is in their early youth and in their explorations, they have quite, seem to have quite different philosophies. So Darwin uh, in Edinburgh, um, you argue, I think, quite successfully. Was, expo was it, in, it was in Edinburgh, I think, if I'm correct. Is that correct? Yes, you're correct. Yes, yeah. In Edinburgh, he was exposed to materialist philosophies um, very, very early on, and they were que clearly formative um, for him. And there's extracts in uh, the, in I think, uh, Voyage of the Beagle, but also otherwise that indicate that he was trying to essentially um, naturalize biology and the and the origin of 
trying to find a way to explain these things through purely material causes. Um, and that seems to come out. And then, and then when he's actually doing his explorations, he's like this very aloof, distanced Victorian who's kind of, oh, isn't that interesting? Ah, write about that. And there's some barnacles here. I'll, I'll spend the last 20 years of my life talking about that. You know, <laughs> he's, he's quite aloof. Um, whereas Wallace, he, he seems to, the only thing he really wants to prove is himself. He wants to kind of get out there because he doesn't come from this, you know, the same establishment that Darwin came from. He's poorer. He wants to get out there and kind of make a name for himself through his achievements and through what he can find. So he's out there. He's living amongst the people. He, he then gets a very, very human touch. He gets, um, yeah, he gets really acquainted with the real issues in biology. And he comes across as very open-minded. And that's evidenced by the fact that he changes his mind in, in certain respects as he goes on. But he seems like a mind that's on fire. He's trying to understand how things developed. And I think it was his Sarawak paper, which um, I think is, as far as I could tell, really essentially was the, the foundation of the modern theory of evolution. Because he, he doesn't, if I remember correctly, he doesn't really talk about natural selection uh, as a formative process, but he basically talks about evolution. Um, yes, and I, you're I, right. I think, I think he really should be credited with it. Before Darwin, because he, you know, I don't know, he, he, he seems to really be talking about that. So he's this mind on fire and, and then he sends that, that letter to, um, to Darwin and Darwin receives it, freaks out, realizes he needs to publish his work. Uh, but I mean, what do, you, do, you, do you agree with that, that kind of assessment of the differences between the two? Uh, yes, uh, an, an important difference to understand from the beginning, you, you mentioned this briefly, but it's a significant difference is that when when Darwin when Darwin signed on um, to accompany Fitzroy on the Beagle, um, he basically was a paid customer, a paid uh, passenger on that ship. He he was he was there because his his daddy paid his way more or less. Um, Wallace, I mean, he was a working class guy, so when he went off on these forays he would collect and then send back to his agent um, various exotic specimens for sale in the museums and to the well-heeled collectors back in England um, uh, of the items that he was collecting. So he had to collect to literally live. That, mm. that, was, that was his livelihood. Uh, Darwin's voyage on the Beagle, I mean, he was just there because he wanted to be. Wallace wanted to be, but he, if he, if he wanted to continue, uh, uh, you know, looking at these exotic uh, forms in nature, uh, he had to pay his own way. Mm. And the way he, he did that was he sent um, uh, specimens back and sold them to his agent uh, and then would, of course, receive funds back and he could continue on um but but he was uh in fact in, in some circles he's it was was referred to as a specimen haggler mm. which was sort of a derisive term for him uh and uh but you know he he, he overcame that um and, and that was two very different aspects but you're very right the, the about the sarawak law paper is a very significant paper now that came about a couple of years before uh, the real letter that would launch 
modern evolutionary theory. That 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 was the what's often called the Ternate letter because it was written by by Wallace while while he was on the island of Ternate, uh, and he sent that letter to uh, Darwin. Uh, Darwin claims to have received it sometime in in June uh, of 1858, and then on July 1st they rather hurriedly called in a sort of an emergency meeting of the Linnaean Society where uh, they read a letter that Darwin wrote to Asa Gray in 1857, uh, along with an 1844 unpublished sketch by Darwin. And then at the end of the meeting, they read uh, Wallace's Turnate letter, which was titled On the Tendency of Varieties to Depart from the Original Type. And uh, uh, it's easy to say that July 1st, 1858 is the birthday of modern evolutionary theory, mainly because uh, Darwin was aghast that he was about to be scooped by Wallace, who had apparently completely independently come up with the theory of natural selection. And so, when 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 Darwin got that letter, he just freaked out and he went to Joseph Hooker and uh, Charles Lyell and he says, oh my gosh, he said, what am I going to do? And uh, that's what happened. Of course, after that, he knew he didn't have much time. And so uh, by November of 1859, he, he had gotten his, his act together and finally published Origin of Species. Yeah, but it, it was known, although, I mean, Darwin's book was probably the, the more only the more significant um, thing in public opinion. It was it's, it was known as the Darwin Wallace theory of of evolution, wasn't it? They were both they were both right. in the early days quite well co credited, right? Uh, and that's changed. So that, that's an interesting discussion as to why that happened. But maybe we'll come towards that towards the end. <laughs> um, sorry, you were going to say something. Well, I I, I, I was I was going to point out uh, you did mention that in in Edinburgh. Um, Darwin already received his template of how he was going to view the world. Mm. And that, that template was really created for him by a pure materialist by the name of, of um, Grant. Uh, uh, Grant was a member of a Plenian society which was a sort of a free thinker society. I like the way they, they, they apply names to things like free thinkers, like they're supposed to be free. And he, no, free thinkers is just code for materialists. Yeah. Um, like skeptics today. Yeah. So, yeah so, some, some of the least skeptical people I've ever come across. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's very true. At any rate, Darwin joined this plenty in society, and that was, you know, just a collection of, of so-called three free thinkers, but there he met um, uh, an an older. Uh, well, he was a man. Uh, Darwin was just a teenager. He was about seventeen years old when he met him, uh, Edmund Grant, and um, Grant was um, a complete and thorough materialist. Um, his specialty was aquatic invertebrates, and yeah. He would go on walks with, with Grant and they would undoubtedly talk about aquatic invertebrates, but they also probably talked about evolution as well. And they 
also probably talked about materialism. Now, um, when I was working in one of my earlier books, a historian had said to me, you know, well, that's true. He may have taken walks with, 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 with Grant, but that doesn't mean that, that he became an evolution, uh, evolutionist. And I said, well, that's not really the question. The question isn't whether or not the walks with, that he had as a teenager with Grant prompted him to become an evolutionist. The question is, did those walks with Grant as a teenager, prompt him to become a materialist. Yes, yeah. And I think that's the key. And we have a smoking gun. And it came out years later, years after those walking tours, when Grant wrote a book called Tabular View of the Primary Divisions of the Animal Kingdom. And he published this in 1861. And he has sort of an introductory letter in there um, where he talks about, he, he reminded his protege, Charles Darwin, who by that time was, had, had, had come out with uh, another edition of, of Origin and Species and so forth. And he reminded him of their common labors nearly 40 years earlier in his words, in the same rich field of philosophic inquiry. Mm -hmm. This is Grant reminding Darwin of that. Now, Darwin didn't want to talk about that, but yeah. I think that lets the cat out of the bag. Mm. And Grant was basically saying, come on, Charles, remember those philosophic discussions <laughs> we had all those years ago? Remember how I made you the fine materialist that you are today? That's essentially what he was saying. Darwin doesn't want to, and you never hear anybody talk about that. And the reason they don't want to talk about that is they always want to, I think, support the fiction that Darwin himself promoted, particularly through his autobiography, that he came to nature as a blank slate that he was completely objective. And it was just the, the sheer weight of the evidence that caused him to come up with this brand of evolutionary theory. And I think that's, that's absolutely false. I think Darwin knew better. Um, he didn't wanna really let that out. But the fact of the matter is, Darwin was probably in many senses, despite the fact he talks about, oh, how he used to quote the Bible and talk about Paley and all this. Fact of the matter is, I think Darwin was a materialist the moment he stepped on uh, the, the HMS Beagle. And, and maybe he was a bit of a conflicted materialist, but ultimately the materialism in him won and he was... He came out, you know, having formulated what he thought was a way of getting rid of design in nature. Right, that's true. I mean, I'm not saying that he had a full and coherent view of what his materialist views were going to be, but but he was already leaning in that direction, and he already had a pretty well constructed template in his mind of what that would look like because he had gotten that template from Grant. All that common laboring. Yes. <laughs> in, in the fields of philosophic inquiry. Yeah. And Wallace, uh, again, strikes you as quite different because he is someone who kind of um, didn't 
wasn't a huge fan of of the church and sort of traditional view of Christianity and seemed to have just a more of an open conception of possibilities. Uh, would you kind of, would you say that's correct? Uh, well, he he certainly, as a child, was raised in a a, a pretty traditional Anglican setting. Uh, he had heard all the you know the standard sort of Anglican sermons and uh, was reared on the traditional Bible stories of youth. Um, but he sort of left that uh, when he went to London and started to join some of the more radical workers uh, groups uh, in London at the time. Um, and uh, you know there was a uh, they would have these working men's in institutes um, in London that were uh, tended to be sort of socialistic and and sort of left left leaning um, uh, groups. Uh, and he was influenced by those, and uh, Wallace uh, uh, abandoned the, the 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 faith of his youth, um, and never became a, a, a you know a professed Christian per se. But ironically, I, I don't think he ever left a faith-filled worldview, if if you if you might mm -hmm. put it that way. Uh, and that was that's what allowed him to create a a natural theology that was really perfectly compatible, um, as far as I can tell, with, with most of the basic tenets of, of the Abrahamic faiths, because he himself was not trying to plug his natural theology into a specifically Christian context, but rather more broadly into a theistic uh, scenario that was less constricted if you might want to put it that way hmm. okay so at the beginning they're kind of taken as two peas in a pod in a sense they're they're paired together but quite quickly in the 1860s um they separations start to form darwin says you know i hope you've not too too completely murdered yours and my child when talking about one of these uh review articles that comes out he start, Wallace starts to have these doubts about whether the human mind and other human capacities can be explained through the principle of utility. Um, and and what, what happens after that? How do they, how, do they kind of completely go their separate ways? How does, how does, how does that relationship work? Well, they remain cordial. Um, Darwin realized that, that Wallace was no longer a kindred spirit. Um, he became in, in Ross Slotin, uh, wrote a, a, an excellent biography on Wallace, uh, came out around 2004 called A Heretic in Darwin's Court, which I think is a good description of what Wallace had become. And, uh, but they remain cordial, so cordial, in fact, that, that near the end of Darwin's life, he actually petitioned the British government to award, uh, Wallace a lifetime pension. Um, that he felt Wallace had earned, uh, that he had made a significant uh, contribution um, to science and uh, deserved, um, you know, to, to be taken care of. And, and that award was granted. It was about 200 pounds per annum, which was a lot of money back then. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a huge sum of money, but it was enough to to mm. keep he and, and, and Annie uh, above water. Uh, 
but, you know, I guess he could take a page, you know, where we have these highly polarized views uh, of evolution today. Um, the two leading founders of the theory uh, seem to get along reasonably well, even though they knew that, uh, that, that they were not, uh, you know, simpatico on, on key issues uh, of what that theory meant. Yeah. And I guess I might say that, that the key division is what Wallace developed as intelligent evolution. Um, and, and what that is, is a theory of common descent, descent based upon natural selection, but strictly bounded by the principle of utility, which of course is is the idea that uh, no organ or attribute of an organism will be developed and retained unless it affords it a survival advantage. So, so intelligent evolution um, uh, is then cast within a larger teleological framework uh, because natural selection is so limited on that basis. Yeah that then once you go beyond that, what are these special attributes that humans have? For example, we talked about speech or religious capacity, abstract reasoning, mathematical ability, music, art, dance, all of those things that make humans humans. How do we explain that? Well, Wallace's explanation was teleological. We can only explain that by an overruling intelligence. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, there's, he famously spoke about... Um... The idea that if you take uh, someone from, so uh, I guess a primitive tribe, you could say, or, or you know, a, a less developed right. community or an underdeveloped community, um, and transplant them into the British intelligentsia, for instance, take a child from there, uh, grow, you know, raise them as someone in modern society, and they'll basically come, they'll they'll grow up with with normal intellectual functioning, and they'll be able to you know, do advanced mathematics or be some kind of musical genius or whatever it is, indicating sure. that there are these unopened gifts biologically within the within the mind of, of that original community. But if they're not mm -hmm. being used yet, if they're if they're not actually manifesting themselves and there's no um real use of them, no utility that you could see, then how can you explain that uh through a Darwinian um through a Darwinian perspective? Right. Right. And he applied that quite widely, as you said, with all these different capacities. Now, the the interesting thing for me is that, well, one of one of the many interesting things is that, and I find it a little bit weird, is Wallace, despite you know towards the end of his life having so many different, um, so many diverging views to Darwin, especially on this issue, he still saw himself as a champion of Darwinism, and he still kind of called evolution. <laughs> Darwinism, I think he's just very polite and very kind of uh, deferent to uh, to Darwin. Do you think he never? Do you think he never really appreciated the the differences, or do you think he did but didn't see? I don't know. Well, how how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that Wallace himself had a very different view to uh, Darwin's right. view, but still called evolution Darwinism. It, it's a tough one, and I and I think it's a calculated error on his part. Um, in part because um, I think the class-ridden society, the Victorian society in which he and, 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 and Darwin grew up, was so 
stratified that Wallace as basically a working class commoner yeah. always felt deference to Darwin, if by, by no other measure, if not by his rank as a scientist, just by a sheer class. And, and while this is not explicitly stated by, by Wallace, I think one of the reasons he kept talking about, about Darwinian theory in, a Dar you know, in terms of Darwin's you know, aim uh, was sort of an expression of that, um, of that, def of that class deference. Um, and yet I think he came to understand that there really was a difference between their, those two. And, and in fact, toward the end of his life, I think in an interview, um, he sort of makes a, an offhand remark that uh, those who continue to talk about, curiously enough, Darwinism, um, you know, fail to realize that, that, that really, um, it's just a, um, it, it's just, a, it's a theory of natural selection um, that does not have to exclude um, uh, purpose in nature, um, but has been construed to do that. Hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's an add-on um, that, that the theory does not, in his view, demand. And in fact, he thought that his alternative made more sense. What he didn't realize and what I think he missed um, was the degree to which Darwinism had become an ideology. And um, there were a couple of times when People began to refer to Wallaceism because Wallace's views were so different from, from Darwin's. And he always rejected that idea. And in fact, you know, completely uh, rejected the idea of Wallaceism. He believed that he was merely applying uh, natural selection actually more rigorously than Darwin had. And uh, he believed that, that in his scenario, his development of intelligent ev evolution was actually a stronger and believe it or not, more scientific theory than Darwin's was. That, that seems, I know that seems counterintuitive to us hmm. because we have spent so many years talking about Darwin and the neo-Darwinian synthesis as though it were tantamount to science in itself. But Wallace never assumed that. And, and from Wallace's standpoint, if you step outside that, the demands of the Darwinian paradigm, um, who's to say that Darwin wasn't wrong to begin with and that Wallace wasn't correct? Um, and, and part of what I try to do is, as you probably noticed in Nature's Prophet, is actually carry examples up f forward of yeah, scien yeah. scientists who had um, sort of carried Wallace's views uh, into our present age. It's not as if, you know, Wallace's ideas are just 
dead and gone and, and they vanished in 1913. No, other, other well-credentialed scientists have taken his ideas and moved them forward even into our own generation. And you show uh, quite well something of actually a lineage, um, actually people who read Wallace and then carried some of those ideas on, some explicitly. Some of them, obviously there were others who just came to a, to a similar view uh, somewhat separately, but there right. is something of a lineage. But can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what was, by the end of his life, what was Wallace's worldview in terms of um, spiritual agency and the direction of, uh, of nature? Well, that, that all of us have a purpose, that human beings were put here to have a purpose, that um, evolution is really a, a process of progress. And it is primarily the, the, the ultimate goal of, of evolution is for the improvement of human beings. Hmm. And our place in nature is to improve ourselves uh, in ways uh, that um, will bring us to greater spiritual knowledge and enlightenment. And did he believe evolution was, was he explicit in saying that evolution was directed by a higher power? Yes. The final, the final chapters of the world of life are full of allusions to what he believed were a hierarchy of, of spiritual beings who had an ordered... Um, hierarchy of activities to perform in the natural world. In other words, he saw the laws of nature. If you want to talk about the laws of nature, the laws of nature were tools used by spiritual forces in a directed manner. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, let's not be fooled just because, you know, we may tie ourselves to the laws of nature, that doesn't mean that those laws are blind. Those laws are directed. For example, if you think of a, of a, of a hammer or a saw or, you know, a level um, to, to make sure something is even or, you know, any other kind of tool, pair of pliers or screwdriver, all of those things are designed to do something in and of themselves. They're kind of meaningless. Yeah. yeah I mean, they're, they're, they're prepared to perform a certain function, but in and of themselves, they mean very little. And I think Wallace viewed the laws of nature the same way. Yes, they're tools, but unless there's a hand guiding them, they mean nothing. Yeah. Now, of course, that's that's heresy in the ranks of science today. Yeah. And I understand that, but there are um, there are many. I won't say many, but there are some significant biologists out there who would and and scientists, for example, who would who would argue on behalf of Wallace's view. Um, 
just a couple of examples is, is one uh, very prevalent today, a biologist by the name of Rupert Sheldrake, with whom you may be familiar. Uh, I don't know. Did, yeah. did, did, did you do an interview with him? Yes, Have we you? did. Good. Well, that, that makes sense. I can <laughs> see it. He'd be somebody you'd want to talk to. Rupert Sheldrake is, is a person like that. Um, the neuroscientist John C. Eccles, um, a, a Nobel laureate in the field, who did an, an important work on the neural synapse, um, uh, believed uh, in a guided and teleological nature, so much so that when his, his book came out um, back in the 80s, uh, it was reviewed and they were appalled and they, they accused John C. Eccles of Wallaceism. Oh, wow. Oh wow! So I mean, there's there's there are uh, good, well-credentialed, um, well-established scientists out there even today um, yeah. who are who are carrying the the teleological banner forward, and that's well, I guess what I was saying earlier when we opened the program up. Uh, that's kind of the story I'm working on now that I would like to develop more fully. Yeah. And what do you think are the world, the um, social implications of these two worldviews that are embodied in Darwin by the end of his life and Wallace by the end of his life? Because you spoke a little bit about how, um, you know, Darwin often got cultures wrong and he didn't fully understand them and Wallace had much more of a human touch. Um, how did, I guess what I want to come to um, is how did that affect their views on race? Yes. and on social harmony as a whole. Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, you know, with Wallace, uh, he came out and basically said, you know, I, I've lived amongst indigenous peoples for many, many years in many, many settings. And I can now, you know, really say without fear of contradiction that there are no better or worse people in this world. They're all human beings. Uh, and he's writing this, you know, in the 1910s and, and, and teens. And that was almost unheard of back then. Um, and he's saying, no, I mean, there, there's not, there's really one race, it's the human race. And, and there aren't better or worse races. And I think it's because he had spent a lot of time living uh, with people and 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 actually experiencing their culture in intimate ways that led him to that to that belief. Well, what did what did Darwin's theory do? Well, it prompted his cousin um, uh, Galton uh, to develop um, uh, social Darwinism, which actually categorized people and actually led the way to the eugenics movement, which was horrific, which was an attempt to, to engineer humanity by means of, of evolutionary selection. And um, it was a, a horrific uh, exercise in scientism of the worst kind in which, um, uh, Individuals were categorized by IQ and uh, uh, categorized by race and racial features. And I'm not saying Darwin was responsible for all this in an immediate sort of way, but his theory um, sur sort of lent itself to that sort of racialized uh, view. 
when when this was becoming more and more prominent um, uh, late in, in Wallace's life, uh, Wallace was appalled by that. He wanted nothing to do with eugenics. He said it was nothing but the arrogant manipulations of an arrogant scientific priestcraft. And uh, he completely rejected eugenics when everybody else was jumping on on board on the in, on the great bandwagon of gee we'll really improve humanity through the eugenics movement, Wallace was saying you know this is this is this is leading to no good, um, mm. and is a, um, uh, a a terrible exercise in the false application of 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 science because it's really not science at all. Yeah. I mean, it's very powerful. He was such a a, a brilliant critic um, of of the the other voices in his time. Um, now, you've kind of outlined very well his view on s how science and broader natural theology kind of intersect. Do you think Wallacean evolution, if we can call it that, is a fruitful scientific paradigm? I think it's it's less fruitful than our materialist paradigm, the same or more fruitful? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by fruitful. Um, that word's <laughs> doing a lot of heavy lifting there, isn't it? Yeah, that word is doing a, a great deal of heavy lifting. Um, I, 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 I think if you look at the Darwinian paradigm, w one of the fundamental features of of neo-Darwinism or whatever you want to call it, is a phrase I'm sure you're very familiar with called methodological naturalism. Okay, now this is the the notion that scientists uh, must invoke only natural processes functioning via unbroken natural laws in non-teleological ways, uh, and and we we find in the history of science that 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 notion methodological naturalism has never been prevalent. In the sciences, Galileo didn't believe in it. Newton didn't believe in it. Um, you know, most of the 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 Renaissance discoverers didn't believe in it. Um, so that's something that is imposed on science um, by the neo-Darwinian paradigm when is it, when it's extrapolated to be a means of science itself. And I'm not sure that that is, to use your phrase, I'm not sure that's a fruitful <laughs> way of engaging with science. I mean, what, what, why, does, why does science need to start out with that kind of straitjacket? Mm. And to be honest, most people who think they're operating in a materialist paradigm and have those beliefs in reality, when they're engaging with, let's say, biology, I think they're not really using it because they're looking at something they don't understand and saying, well, there must be some, there must be some purpose here. Uh, there must be something that's yeah. actually going on here, which is a teleological way of thinking. I mean, junk DNA is a great example of that in the modern day. Um, right. And there are so many other examples. A curiosity gets the better of us, but that curiosity ultimately has its foundation in uh, believing in a cause of causes and in believing in, in design. Well, you know, even even Richard Dawkins can't get away from from teleology. He actually defined biology as as that study of nature which looks designed, but in fact is not. 
It's quite the caveat. Now, <laughs> you talk about somebody who's dragging the corpse of teleolo teleology behind him. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got to be Richard Dawkins. And I would say it's time to shock the corpse awake and, and take another look. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's a... Uh, there's another way of looking at this that that has been intriguing me of late, and and it's I refer to it well. Actually, he uses this phrase too. I think uh, you're familiar with the physicist Freeman Dyson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just passed away oh a few months ago. Actually, he's great mind, great great mind. Thinks out of the box, uh, has his own ideas. Uh, does not necessarily kowtow to opinion. Mm. And if you doubt that, just check him out on on the question of global warming at any uh, rate <laughs> okay at any rate um he's an interesting thinker and freeman dyson uh has something i call the the dyson's hypothesis and dyson talks about all kinds of spiritual or sometimes what we call paranormal phenomenon um psychokinesis, whatever you want to, whatever you think of those various phenomenon is sort of beside the point when you think about Dyson's hypothesis. What he says about these things is it could very well be that some of these sort of paranormal or extra sensory phenomenon exist beyond the, in fact, his words, the clumsy means of science to really investigate and explain. But simply because they exist beyond the means of scientific methodology to explain doesn't mean they're not true, doesn't mean mm -hmm. they don't exist. They may in fact exist, but they may be a different sort of they may exist in a different epistemological realm, if you will. Mm. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, calculate, you know, the weather, you know, you can take the temperature or, you know, you can calculate the movements of the stars and you can, you know, calculate the trajectory of, of a comet or, you know, whatever. You can do all of those things. That's true. That's the realm of science. And science can do a great deal. Uh, not only in 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 astronomy, but uh, in physics and in in uh, medicine and and so forth and so on. Science can do a great deal, but that's not the only kind of knowledge we have. Hmm. We have historical knowledge. We yeah. have musical knowledge. We have literary knowledge. Um, I mean, scientific knowledge is good knowledge. It's great, but it's not the only epistemological realm in which we as human beings live. And if that, in fact, is the case, there may be untold phenomena out there that are beyond our ability to explain it strictly by scientific means. Hmm. And so Dyson's hypothesis basically says, yes, there may be other things out there simply because we can't prove them scientifically does not mean they're necessarily untrue yes yeah and i think that's applicable actually to people of you know no religious belief because it, it, it's intellectually 
that makes sense on its own merit. Mm -hmm. um, but it reminds me something, for instance, from my own tradition, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he wrote that, uh, I think he said there are three realms of that, of, of kind of, of things that you can have knowledge about or, or ways that you can find things out. There's firstly the direct um, sensory perception and things which you can directly kind of know. Then there is historical way it means um, and through things or people witnessing other things which you yourself don't have direct access to. But then there's a spiritual realm which is um, hidden by its very nature and will need for access to that um, a different means other than our physical senses and it may require our spiritual senses. Uh, but that doesn't make it any less, it may make it less scientific in the, in, in the strict definition of the word, but it doesn't make it any less rational or any less convincing or any less real at the end of the day. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, from a, from a, from Dyson's perspective, I think he would say that's a tidy way of putting it. And uh, not only is it a tidy way of putting it, but, but I think he might add, you know, as you, you know, said, simply because it's not scientific, Again, he would say, just because it cannot be proven by some scientific means does not mean it's not true. That's, that's yeah. a different question. Yeah. We, yeah. We, I think, um, unfortunately, in this day and age, we've fallen into a trap of equating not only science with truth, but we've even gone another step further, and we've made the dangerous leap of equating science with ultimate truth. Yeah. And I, I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. And, and just to, to close off here, how do you view um, Wallace's work as uh, its relevance to people of different faiths? Well, as I've said, and I, I've made mention of this, I, I think in both books, in both Nature's Prophet and Intelligent Evolution, um, it took me a while to see this, but as I studied Wallace more and more, I came to see that he really was nature's prophet in the broadest sense of the term, in that he has crafted a natural theology that is not based in pantheism, and, and that's so, so in many ways he is not amenable to some of the Eastern religions, um, he also rejected um, reincarnation. So, you know, again, he's not a good fit there, but he is a good fit, I think, as far as I can tell. And I, I will leave experts in their own faith traditions to make their own conclusions here. But as far as I can tell, he has crafted a natural theology that is perfectly compatible with all the Abrahamic faiths. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I like that the modern intelligent design movement has somewhat taken after his um, approach in this, it just in, in the specific sense that they don't align themselves closely with any kind of, with any specific religion. They take a sense of, well, can we detect uh, d design and then leave the worldview implications for those who will draw them. Uh, right. And I think that makes it very open and accessible for someone like me to people of Jewish faith, Christian faith, and those who are just intellectually dissatisfied with our modern materialist uh, perspective. Yes, and I, I would say if you, if you want to look, you know, Wallace is sort of a good fit for ID generally, but, but he goes a step further and he ascribes these spiritual agencies to things that I think goes beyond the ID, you yeah. know, parameters. And, and I get that. I, I understand that. 
On the other hand, um, I, I think in terms of what how he viewed nature and uh, what he saw as the the driving forces in nature is very, very much in line with modern ID theory. Yeah. And, and so I, I still see Wallace as one of the, uh, certainly not the, but a significant founding father of what would eventually become the uh, current intelligent de design movement. He's the obvious uh, mascot or emblem or hero of it, if you will, because <laughs> he's, you know, the, the co-founder of the, of the opposing theory. Uh, I have little doubt that if Wallace were alive today, he would be an ID theorist of the first order. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a good place to to, to leave it. Um, Michael, thank you very much for 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 joining us and um, for educating our listeners and our um, viewers on this topic. Uh, again, you have many books. They're all excellent. I haven't read all of them, but I've read a few of them. Uh, this one is Nature's Prophet. Uh, Alpha Russell Wallace and his evolution from natural selection to natural theology. It's excellent, especially because it's not it's not like a, a massive tome, but it does cover things very succinctly, but quite thoroughly. So I, I really I really appreciated this book. You've got uh, also Intelligent Evolution, um, which is a, a new release. And uh, you're looking forward to doing a comprehensive history of teleology, <laughs> which is going to be a... Yeah, in my, in my spare time, Omar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when that's published, um, come back on the show. But also before that, if um, uh, if the if the time arises, it'll be it'd be lovely to have you back um, uh, to to discuss things further. Well, thank you for very very much for having me. I, I really appreciate our time together, and uh, uh, just uh, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Um, and to our viewers at home, make sure that you uh, subscribe to our channel, uh, share this content with others, and uh, you know to our podcast give us a like if you're watching and give us some comments and let us know what you think about this topic till next time peace be upon you